welcome to Tech Kitchen Talks, episode 15. In this episode, Dave from Silicon Valley and myself, Glenn from London, discuss the warning signs around Doom projects, what is testing in production, and other items that have caught our attention this week. If you'd like to join our exclusive free community for technology leaders, please sign up at techkitchen.io, where you can join our Slack group and keep the conversation going. Hi again, Dave. Hey, Glenn. Great to be here. Great to see you again. So then, uh, this week, the first topic I thought would be a good uh, communication piece is doomed projects. On some of my networks that I've been, I've seen a few examples of this recently of people coming in, CTOs coming into projects that have been going on for one year, maybe two years, you know, not even halfway complete in a really poor state, all the budget's been spent. And uh, I came across another blog post from, I don't know if you've seen the website, doomprojects.com, where there's loads of examples of this, of developers highlighting cases where they knew the project they were working on was doomed from very early on. And when highlighted to managers, they did nothing about it. So I thought it would be an interesting topic to discuss, you know, what are the warning signs and, you know, what type of steps afterwards you can take to try and uh, mitigate such risks. Yes, the doom project. We've been having this conversation for like 40 years. The doom project never goes away. No matter how many advancements we make in technology, process, engineering, DevOps, we still have the doom projects. My experience is that it's mostly a leadership issue. A lot of people kind of blame it on the engineers, right? They, they couldn't get their product done. It didn't work. They had technical issues. But having seen quite a few doomed and failed projects over the years, it tends to come from a very, very high level, at least my experience, where the highest level stakeholders are having alignment issues, expectation issues, communication issues, turf wars, whatever it is. And meanwhile, there are a bunch of engineers and middle managers toiling away, trying to keep up. They have no idea that the project is in fact doomed. They're just trying to keep up. And then one day it becomes clear, like, oh, we're never going to get this thing out. And then you're in the classic death march mode where the developers know that the project is doomed, but they're still working on it. It seems to look the same today as it did 20 years ago, but maybe it's less common. Do you think that agile practices and just better project management and better operations have reduced the frequency of doom projects, or is it really just the same as it ever was? I've been in the industry for almost 18 years now working professionally, and you still see the same mistakes from then as you do now. And yes, the whole ideal of agile and, you know, building MVP, small iterations, moving forward, maybe not even doing estimates. That is another thing of um, agile manifesto where, you know, you're supposed to spend more time building products than just trying to estimate out and guessing how long it's going to take you. As you say, it's a leadership thing. If the team and the people in charge don't understand how to run Agile effectively and understand what the expectation of output is from that, then it falls more towards a waterfall approach. It's like, we want to build Twitter, we want to build Facebook. They write down a lot of features without any real description or depth of understanding of what you want to actually try and be building. And yeah, engineers estimate it. They always forget QA time. They always forget bugging time. They forget meeting time. So the estimates are always way too short. And then the product understanding itself is not defined. So therefore it ends up not just 4X in, but like 20X in or even more. So yeah, essentially these failures keep on happening. And I do also agree that it's a leadership thing. So when you have co-founders that are non-technical trying to run a project or something like this, 
they'll go for the cheapest development agency or engineers they know to do this type of work. They'll give them an estimate. And then what they get at the end of the day isn't what they were hoping for. And it just goes on and on and on, throwing more money at this. And because it's been reiterated across so many times, the quality ends up being bad because they keep on taking shortcuts to get something delivered. Yeah, I see the same. We could maybe break it down into two categories. It does come from the leadership, although I'm sure there's rare cases where the engineers crunch the project. But Generally, it's from the leadership, and there seems to be two flavors of it. There's the kind of public sector flavor, uh, a lot of governments and institutions. The famous United States IRS, our tax collection agency, is the poster child for failed IT projects. I think it was like 1987 or 86, they had this big announcement. They were going to spend billions of dollars updating their very old systems. Even then, they were 30 years old. And years and years went by, more than 10 years, and they scrapped the whole thing. They couldn't do it. And then they launched it again. Now they were going to spend more money. Everything was going to be agile and great. They botched it again. Literally has been going on for 40 years. And the problem with the IRS, because I've had a little bit of a, a visibility into it, is the classic government problem where no one has enough ownership. So you have a committee of stakeholders, each pushing for their interests and now you get this kind of committee-driven steering for the whole project, and everything is a little bit half-baked and a little bit half-ass. Everybody's pulling in different directions. Now the developers are getting sucked into pet projects and things like that, and nobody can really agree on what is the core architecture and just making the stupid thing work. Nothing comes together, and the whole thing dies. This happens in public sector all the time. During uh, my uh, IBM days, we saw it up close and it's very lucrative. There's a lot of companies cashing in on this, taking advantage of the fact that these large organizations can't organize and just farming money. And then there's the other leadership debacle, which is sort of, um, I mean, incompetence is a harsh word, but like you said, if the leadership comes in and gets a bunch of estimates and says, we're ready to go, but they don't have the experience to really look at what is this roadmap? Are those realistic? What is it going to take to launch it? Do we have enough runway? to make it work, it'll fall apart as well. And I always think of, there's one project I did, it was 1999 or 98, and we were doing an e-commerce store for pregnant women. Well, it was a new business, but it was a good concept. They had a lot of really good products and merchandisers and content for pregnant women. Everything was going to be great. And we were going to actually build the storefront, which in 1998 cost like a million dollars. And we were building it and it was looking great. And then we started demoing it for their leadership. And people started saying, where's the accounts payable system? Where's the inventory tracking? How do the logistics work? How do we track shipping? And all these questions. So we scurried back and looked at the contract. Uh-oh, like, what, what are we on the hook to build? And we were just building the storefront. There was nobody on the leadership team or the investment team who really understood how these things work. There was no CTO. And they were pretty shocked when they realized that we were waiting for them to tell us what to integrate to. Where's your accounting system? Just let us know. We'll integrate. Because we were on the hook to integrate with it. And it was too late. And then it turned into the death march. And we had the developers keep going until they ran out of money. And that was it. That's the um, incompetence or maybe just knowledge gap leadership debacle. 
And that's the thing, isn't it? As you say, it's the experience of not going through these processes before. So therefore, if you are trying to build a product, you need someone that's been through the process of a software development lifecycle before to understand that. And obviously to understand the gaps, like an inventory system or accounts payable, to understand how other parts of the business are going to hook into this. And when it comes to when it is the developer's fault, the only cases I can think of are developers underestimating the workload, but not then communicating the challenges when they've actually come across it. So normally it falls across communication. So developers hate estimating. They don't want to do it. And obviously they don't feel like they're in a safe environment to do it. So I completely understand the resistance. But if you give them the time to do it, they do the estimate and then halfway through whatever piece they were working on, they realize that, okay, it's much more complicated because of X, Y, Z. If they're not communicating that, the rest of the business doesn't know. And then there's just the assumption of poor performance from the engineering department rather than highlighting the issue and then the business can make a decision whether they want to invest more to actually get it done or whether they want to cut corners, you know, not have to do it the way they originally wanted, but, you know, at least get something out the door and being able to have business value earlier on. Right. And the developers don't want to speak up. Yes. And sometimes the project managers don't want to speak up because maybe they've been beaten up before, right? Maybe their leadership has just said, well, we don't want to hear that, get it done, figure it out or some other thing like that, which is a morale killer. I think you can feel it at the water cooler, right? How do developers know when they're in a doomed project, when they're in the death march? I think you could just feel it. Like, look at uh, Twitter. You know, I know a lot of people that have worked at Twitter, and most of them report there being a feeling in the hallway that they've been going for a long time. They're kind of spinning their wheels, just keeping the lights on. So I don't know if they're doomed, but they definitely had all the makings of a software project that was sort of going nowhere. They were kind of in the death march. There's just this subtle morale, slow death feeling. I mean, what would you tell a developer? How do you know if you're in a death march? How do you know if you're in a doom project? The more junior you are, you don't know. You just expect, you just think this is the way things are done and you do your work. As you get more senior, you understand the nuances of expectations. And if there is no expectations of when things should be delivered, or if they're not taking a step back to actually check the planning, check where they're actually against the plan and be able to show that to everyone on the team, say, this is where we are. We are one week behind or we're two weeks ahead or wherever we are there, then nobody actually knows. So essentially... If, you know, you could be completely blindsided because you don't have direct communication with the customer, you don't know what the expectations of the project are to end. So you're just doing your work. But yeah, if you're more senior and you're higher up and you know what the whole project's entailing and when it's supposed to be delivered and you know you're not going to hit that date and no one's talking about it, then you know there's at least trouble ahead. Whether it's doomed or not is going to be determined by the budget of the client that you're working with. All right, so here's a thought experiment. If every project had in the leadership a CTO or someone who had been through, say, three full cycle software projects, and I mean from breaking code to full release and maintenance, and had really been through it, a seasoned leader that was either a CTO or on the board or somebody really with their head in it, would that alone reduce Dune projects by 80%? Because it might. 
I'd definitely say it would reduce projects failures. Absolutely. I mean, I think because at the moment, the market's pushing more towards fractional CTOs. I don't know if you've seen that a lot in the US side, but in the UK side in Europe, that's really a thing now. I know we're completely changing topics here, but this is exactly the use case where people without the budget to pay for a full-time CTO, they're hiring fraction, like contract CTOs to come in and support for exactly this type of reason to fill those gaps. I don't know if the market is demanding that, but I know a lot of CTOs are going for it. Yes, yes. I mean, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? You work on several projects in a fractional capacity at a higher rate than you would do at full time. Yeah. Who wouldn't? I mean, it sounded pretty good when it was a contract CTO. I used to be a contract CTO. But now that it's fractional, it's much better. It's much more prestigious. You can add a zero to your day rate, definitely, I'm sure. (laughs) Right. Because I'm not a contractor. I'm here on a fractional basis. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you would think that as time goes by, I mean, you and I have seen, at least I've seen, clients become more sophisticated all the time. The clients we have today are not the clients from 15 years ago. They're smarter. They're more experienced. They're more agile. More clients have been through a full cycle release. Not all of them, but many more. More clients have been through outsourcing and been through failed demos, and they've learned a lot of lessons. People are much smarter. So you would think that this problem would be on the decline but I'm just not sure that it is. And getting back to the thought experiment, you could put a very experienced CTO into a public sector project and it may not make any difference at all because in the really huge institutional projects, it's more about not listening. People don't really care. If someone says it's not possible, someone else will say, well, this is what I want because it's a different universe. So I guess it's not going to go away. (laughs) Doom projects are here to stay. Sure. But you know, it's boot camp for being a good CTO. That's where you learn. Sure. And we've always got new CEOs coming in, making startups, which are obviously the ones that normally get the brunt of this, which is uh, one of the reasons why in the startup world, what is it, 90% of startups fail in a certain number of years, like three or four years. Yeah. So uh, I can imagine development planning being part of the reason, not just funding and expectations of growth. There's been an explosion of very, very young, newly minted, wealthy CEOs from the crypto space. Minted is the right word. (laughs) Minted, exactly, yes. It's actually very much the right word because not unlike NFTs, their value was unproven and it was getting tiresome. It felt very much like uh, back in the day, 20 years ago, where there was a lot of new money going around. Now, I think with the economy slowing a bit and the crypto space in peril, I think we'll see a little less of that for a while. We have a little window to take a breath. I think there's going to be less crazy money and more realistic clients that have some experience. I hope. We'll see. Cool. All right. We should probably move on to the next topic then. Last week, I was uh, moderating an event and the topic was actually testing versus observability. It was a great topic of conversations to be chatted about. One of the interesting things, which I've definitely not thought about enough and seems to be really much more common than I thought it would be, is testing in production. Just like the phrase gives me shivers from my old development background, where I used to change code in production because that's, you know, how you used to roll back in the day. So I thought it'd be an interesting topic to actually discuss. Let me just give you a quick overview. You know, why invest heavily in staging environments, lots of QA time where you can just feature flag everything, put it out, and your user base is, is your QA team. So essentially, you can switch things on, see if a load of errors are thrown and things are not happening, switch it off again and change what you need to. Obviously, I think the assumption is that you still have staging and test environments with some form of automation testing or manual testing in place, but you can't identify all the challenges just from your internal team. 
So that's why testing in production is excellent. And you should have, you know, if you've got good observability and feature flagging, there's no reason not to do it. Is this something you've come across a lot, Dave? I don't think I've worked on a project where we've actually done that before. So I don't know how common it really is. Let's clarify what we're talking about. Because on one hand, I don't want to do like the old guy thing again, but, you know, over the last 30 years, there's been a lot of testing in production if we're talking about kind of releasing new features that have already been tested and we're just kind of smoke testing them on a small scale or beta testing on a large scale. Microsoft, you might argue, has been testing in production the whole time, right? Every time there's a Microsoft release, everybody used to roll their eyes because you know that we were essentially not just the beta testers, but sometimes the alpha testers. They were shipping bugs all over the place. It's expensive to QA everything. So now we have a lot of uh, split testing and limited rollouts and people sending an invite, right? Have you had an invite for this new app? It's a form of testing in production. So on one hand, this has been going on for a very, very long time. It's not really new. What does seem to be new is that there are a lot of new tools. It's just like DevOps. DevOps is not really a new field as much as a new world of tools that didn't exist before. So now there can be a role to operate those things. So what are we talking about? Are we talking still about split testing new features, releasing very gently a pretty well feature to see if it is robust and will scale, doing a little bit of gentle last mile integration testing, things like that? Or are we actually talking about shifting away from the staging area and actually shipping new code and new features and just having it out in production. I mean, what does it really mean? So the conversation I was having is to stop heavily investing in your other environments because it's a waste of money. Your users never see those. So it's not saying don't put no money towards it, but be less cautious with your application and allow it to jump into the production phase faster but obviously we're good at observability and ways to roll it back or switch the feature off should challenges arise from that perspective. And you're moving your testing much more to the edge. You know, testing on the edge, I think sounds much more cooler than testing in production. But obviously making your users the test case. And I can't remember how long it was, about six, well, about three months ago, I think I mentioned on here how poor quality a lot of websites were that was going on. Because I kept on finding issues and bugs and having to raise support tickets for very basic things that I wouldn't expect to get wrong. And it makes me feel like, more companies are starting to do this because they say there may be cost benefits. You don't have to have as many staging environments to run your testing against. You don't have to have big, heavy test scripts. You know, you have lighter testing in the early stages, get it out to production and see what breaks or creaks. I am going to call bullshit on this whole conversation. I mean, not our conversation, but the whole topic, because I keep coming back to the fact that this has already been done. There have been many, many examples over the years of things being released when they're a little bit rough. This is not a new space. There have been many applications released and everybody was complaining about the buggy release. Ticketmaster had the debacle with Taylor Swift, right? Because they rushed a bunch of special features out, they were tested well, and then it got crunched. It's been going on forever. So what's really new about this? I think now people, they see testing in production, right? It's a new term. It's a shiny object. Let's talk about it. But really, it is the same decision that we've always had. It depends on your users and what you're releasing. You know, uh, if you're doing medical scheduling and testing and records and you release some half-assed feature, not only could your users become very unhappy, but there could be legal issues. It's a bad idea. If you're in banking, 
it's a bad idea. If you're releasing a game, maybe it's okay. And everything in between. The decision, I think, is kind of the same as it always has been. We do have better feature flags and better tools with which to do this. But even then, if you're releasing features that may not be ready to go, in a perfect world, it can still be painful for customer support. Right? If 10% of your users are getting the new feature, but it's confusing because it doesn't match the help file and all that, it has an impact. It can screw up your analytics. It can screw up like a soap test. It can screw up your data. It can screw up your funnels and your conversions. So I think it's not really a question of whether it's a good idea or not, as much as a more kind of balanced conversation. When is testing and production a good idea? Certainly split testing and things like that. If there's a feature that may not be mission critical, but we want to maybe even get some feedback on it, test it out, see how it goes, get some metrics. Yeah, maybe you can release your new UI to 5% of your user base for 30 days and collect data, things like that. Integration testing, performance can be really good. Trying out your new transaction processor where customers don't get to see it because you're kind of load balancing it. But aren't these the same conversations we've been having for a long time? I think that you could also consider this more like a mythology. So if you've got the concept of testing in production, then the developers, I assume, should have to be building with the mindset that what can go wrong with this feature. So therefore, making sure you're accounting for all the different user scenarios where something is going wrong. So you're more cautious. You've got more of an expectation that in production, something's going to go wrong. So how do you put a safety net underneath this feature or whatever functionality you're adding to make sure that it doesn't break everything for them. So, you know, you've got nice. But what's new about that? The only thing that's new is that now we're going to send your code to production tomorrow. Yeah, but I think the process is you having to be more cautious about this because if you don't have that mindset, you're just building the feature, you throw it over the water QA, and then they're going to feed back to your errors. Where if you're now saying, well, no, this is going to go into production much easier, like, you know, with a one hour turnaround from your commit, then your mindset now has to be, okay, what's the worst that can happen with what I've just built here? Have I got a delete statement in here? Oh, I have. Okay, right. How do I make sure that doesn't go and do anything else that it shouldn't do? Make sure that you're sanitizing your inputs. So it's an interesting thought. I think, as you say, these type of things we've done in the past, you know, invitations to new access sites, A-B testing is in place. I think it's just trying to go more extreme in that route. And if you've got good observability of your platform, you can identify issues and be able to fix them more readily rather than worrying about trying to fix them earlier in the process. You fix them near the end of the process. Yes. So again, there's better tools now. So it's easier for us to do that. We have better observability and better tools. Still, the idea of QA, I think, if we look at it not from an engineering perspective, but just as a business, is to shield your users from some kind of negative impact so you don't kill your revenue, right? You don't want the site to go down and you don't want the users to have a bad experience. You know, if you're Amazon.com and people are used to a very, very good customer service experience and the website is fast and good and it starts getting buggy, that could really affect revenue over time, depending on your brand. So it's the same conversation. Like how much testing do we do? How much risk do we want to take with our user experience? Because the more time we take to prevent that experience, the more money it is. The less time, the more we're risking our user experience, our brand, net promoter, all that stuff. I think it's just the same conversation. It's kind of like when Agile was you know, born 
You know, when we first started hearing that term, everybody was acting as if it was something really new, right? We have to adopt this new thing. In my experience, it wasn't really so new. It was just that the tools and the ability to build software were reaching a point where it was uh, possible to be more iterative with your work. Whereas, you know, in the 60s, there was no iteration. Everybody was flipping switches and paper tape. You couldn't turn on a dime. It had to be waterfall. There was no other choice. But even uh, back in the 80s at IBM, they were doing rational rows and, and spiral, you know, approaches and all these iterative, the rational unified process was an early attempt at iterative process based on the technology of the day. Agile was not new when it was released. It was just that the tools got much better, so we were able to get very iterative. And here, I think it's the same. I think QA, it's still a decision about how much we want to invest in QA in order to reduce risk of killing our users or just taking the whole business down. It's just a balance of how much money and time we want to spend and I think it's the same thing today. We just have better tools. So it's good that we can test in production more, but I wonder if in the future, the pendulum will swing back and people will say, oh, too much testing in production, uh, the users don't like it. I mean, just a few minutes ago, you were complaining that you're seeing more sites releasing shit code. So it's not good for them, but maybe we don't care. I guess we'll find out, but I want everything to be well-tested. Sure. Okay, wonderful. And then moving on to the last segment of this podcast is what caught our attention this week. So, Dave. What caught my attention is the Elizabeth Holmes sentencing, which I think was 11 plus years. And it's not surprising that she was convicted, but it's been very interesting to me how much kind of public sort of glee there has been over this. On Twitter and LinkedIn, people were just going nuts talking about how much she deserved it and how justice is done. Whereas, you know, maybe 10 years ago, these sort of white collar, high tech crimes, nobody really cared that much. It was considered like an abstract thing. Nobody cared. My hope is that there is just more public attention on the tech space, and especially in the venture capital space, and just more people taking note of all the fooling around that goes on and how easy it is for somebody to come up with a moonshot idea and a little bit of charisma and say all the right things. And there they are on the cover of Fortune magazine. And it's not a good thing, right? We're in this sort of like cult of venture capital and Silicon Valley. And I think that we might have reached like peak tech, you know, God state. I think people are starting to turn. SBF could be next. It's possible that Elon Musk will get dragged into court. Eventually, he's got a lot of legal things going on. I think a lot of people would like to see that. So that's the news that I liked, which is not that Elizabeth Holmes is going to prison, but that people seem to be paying attention to corporate wrongdoing in the Silicon Valley, which makes me happy. There's one thing that really bugs me about that, though. So she's only been found guilty for defrauding 10 victims out of $121 million. She was found not guilty of two counts of defrauding patients and one count of conspiracy to defraud patients. That's what I believe she should get in charge for not just the fact that the rich people lost some money, which they can afford to lose. It's the fact that people's public health was put at risk by not having accurate tests. So I think it shows that if you're going to defraud people, just make sure they don't have money or power to be able to come after you in the courts. Everyone else, it's fine. Yeah, it's true. There is a sort of a weird underbelly of uh, careful who you're ripping off. Exactly. Right. But no worries about the patients. I mean, uh, 
I want to think that in the court system, they were doing what prosecutors do, which is just going for a strong sentencing and not worrying too much about which charges took them there and all of that. But yeah, I think you're right. I think that the impact to the public good and to those patients should take precedence over taking a lot of money fraudulently from a bunch of very wealthy white men. But so be it. Off to prison she goes. Exactly. It's sad that she's having a child in prison, but I think it happens every day. I don't think she's getting um, arrested till like April next year or something like that. I think that's when she needs to make herself available. So I don't know how far along she is. But yeah, she needs to present herself at some point next year. So she's not immediately in prison to my understanding. Will SBF go to prison? That's going to be the next topic. It's the TV show that I'm waiting for. So <laughs> That's right. <laughs> cool. Right, well, we'll see. We'll see. And uh, yeah, just on my side, Netflix has released um, new controls about how you manage access to your accounts and devices. And it's not that bit that's interesting to me. It's the fact that this is always the most common area that any new platform that gets built forgets to think about. The fact that people share access. So, you know, this is essentially how to kick off your ex off your account. So if you break up with your ex, you still got access to your Netflix. Now you've got the ability to be able to do that from your control panel without having to change your password and then update your password managers and all that. So essentially, it's just interesting to see that this is now becoming more of a piece that's available to you where, yes, we know you were sharing your account with other people before. You now have the ability to migrate that account to a different account. You now have the ability to kick people off. So we're going to get stricter on how many people can access your accounts at the same time. Any new platform that gets built doesn't normally take... um, doesn't normally watch what devices and how many concurrent users they've got on the same user account. It's always overlooked. And when you're small, it doesn't matter. But when it gets bigger, it can be a problem. And this isn't just in the normal consumer space either. I know corporations regularly share accounts to certain systems because they have to pay per user and they don't want to have to pay for all 200 members of their staff to access something. So they'll buy 10 and everyone just share the 10. So yeah, it's just something that got my attention because it's always something that's overlooked in uh, the industry. I'm happy to see it. Like a a shared sign-on system, like your Google account, they've always had this. You've been able to go in and see every single app and device that's logged in and you can kick them out. But when it comes to media and just general stuff, you really don't know. My HBO Max account, which I use a lot, I started seeing programs in there in my profile that I'm not watching. Somebody was watching Game of Thrones. I could see them moving through from episode to episode. And it was just wild. And a few other apps that happened. I started watching a ridiculous show called Is It Cake? Because somebody was using my account and I discovered that show that way. But Netflix, I thought, was a little bit different because Netflix was openly allowing people to share accounts was my understanding. They were sort of not encouraging it, but sort of quietly letting that happen because they were exploding with money. They were just printing money over there. And then now that they're in this content crunch and the industry is changing, suddenly they are clamping down. So I think it's a good thing. I think everybody should stop sharing accounts, not because of the ethics of it so much as that it just gets very confusing. And it makes it very difficult for the vendors to provide good service, especially at enterprise SaaS products. So I think it's good. But why is Netflix doing it? Isn't it just a sad money grab for them? 
Yes, for the fact they're going to be limiting the number of screens you can watch on the device on the same account. You know, they've always given you profiles, all the streaming providers do. The fact they're making it easier for you to move your account to another, your history, because that's the worst thing. You share an account, you break up with your ex, and you've forgotten where you are in Game of Thrones. So therefore, you know, I don't have that issue because we don't have HBO over here. We have something else. But, you know, essentially lose your place in all the shows that you're watching. So if you can't migrate it across... You know, you've not just lost the love of your life, but you've also lost where you are in your favorite TV series. That's a double heartbreak. It's a double whammy. It is. So, you know, I think it's nice that companies are going, right, okay, yes, we're going to be more strict on sharing and being able to watch on multiple devices at the same time, but we're going to make it easier for you by giving you the tools you need to limit access for those that want to limit and be able to move your account across. So I think that's a softener by offering this rather than a stick. But yeah, obviously the stick's there to uh, become stricter on who can access from how many devices. Are you on the same IP address? Okay, I just see you've gone on holiday. Prove that you're on holiday and it's not that your sister that lives in Spain that's now watching your Netflix account instead. Right. And it's good that way. I mean, generally, I understand that Netflix was allowing lots of sharing back in the day, and that's okay, but it should be on the up and up. It's not really great for anybody when people are sharing accounts because it is there's sort of a dishonesty to it. It's not a big deal. But better to just figure out pricing models where everybody is being transparent and not abusive. Have you ever heard of the show Is It Cake, though? Because that's what I learned when my accounts were being used. Yes, I know what you're talking about because they make things that look like handbags and you got to tell whether it's a real handbag or cake or not. Yeah. It's an unexpected pleasure. I would very rarely give a TV show recommendation, but to my surprise, I really enjoyed Is It Cake just for some uh, goofy time wasting. So you got to check it out. Okay, there we go. Wonderful. And on that note, if for those that watch Is It Cake, after that, if you haven't signed up to techkitchen.io, please do. And you can join our Slack group. And uh, thank you all for listening to us. So thanks for being with us again, Dave. Thanks, Glenn. See you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye. <laughs>